Uh, please open your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Our passage for this morning, for the third week in a row, is 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. Uh, John Newton once said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still... I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think that's a quote that captures fairly succinctly the Christian doctrine known as progressive sanctification. As Christians, we recognize that God has set us apart as holy, meaning we're not saved simply for salvation's sake. We're not pardoned simply so that we might be spared the wrath of God. Rather, Christ died for our sins so that being justified by faith and reconciled to God, we might glorify Him through our obedience and worship. Still, we make a distinction between what theologians call positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. Positional sanctification refers to the one-time act whereby God sets the Christian apart for a holy purpose, for worship. This occurs instantaneously at the moment of faith. When the Christian believes in Christ, they are immediately designated as holy, as instruments or servants set apart in the service of their king. Progressive sanctification, on the other hand, refers to the process by which God gradually transforms the Christian so that they'll eventually fulfill more and more of this calling they received when they believed over time. This is a doctrine built upon the concept of indwelling sin, that even after conversion, believers still retain a sin nature that resists the will of God. And so even after they're supplied with the knowledge needed to be obedient to God, they're still going to wrestle over their sin and only become increasingly conformed to the image of Christ over time. Combined, these two concepts explain that while Christians do not expect to be perfect in their obedience to God, they should still be making some kind of progress in their faith. And this is the very idea that Newton is describing in his quote. He is not what he ought to be, or wants to be, or even hopes to be in another world. Meaning, he has not yet fulfilled this calling he's received in Christ. He's not yet perfect in his obedience to God. But at the same time, he's not what he used to be either. And by the grace of God, he now is what he is. Meaning, he has made progress. And he's still growing in the faith. That's a pretty accurate way of describing the Christian's relationship with sin post-conversion. However, this notion of progressive sanctification presents a very difficult challenge for the church. Essentially, it means that we should expect some measure of sin in the body of Christ. We shouldn't expect our brothers and sisters to be perfect, meaning we need to be patient with them in their sin. And yet, on the other hand, we should be able to see some discernible signs of growth in their life as well. Again, they mustn't be perfect, but they should be progressing. And so the challenge is how much sin is okay, so to speak? How much sin can we tolerate in the body of Christ before we finally say enough is enough and do something about it? This is a question that we've been exploring for a couple of weeks now in 1 Corinthians 5. And what we've seen so far is that there are really two ways that we can answer this question. On the one hand, how much sin is okay in the body of Christ? Well, Paul answers. It's none. Absolutely no sin is ever okay in the body of Christ. This is a point that we primarily discussed last week. As Paul receives this letter... He gets this news about this extremely heinous sin that's taking place in Corinth. Uh, A man is is sleeping with his stepmother, and the Corinthians are doing nothing about it. 
As Paul explains the problem with this response, he says in verse 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Of course, we've seen what Paul means by this statement. In context, what Paul is getting at is that God disciplines sin. This is what he means when he responds to the news of the church's reaction to this man's sin by saying, And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? In verse 2. It's what he means when he says to them in verse 6, your boasting is not good. The Corinthians have interpreted the grace of God as essentially a kind of license. They see no need to correct this man's sin. They even wear it as a kind of badge of honor that they would be willing to associate with this man since they think this testifies to the grace that's offered in Jesus Christ. In short, they think grace. what grace means is that God will not correct this sin. And even though Paul has already written to them trying to correct this line of thinking, they've ignored his instruction, thinking they understand the true implications of the gospel better than Paul does. Paul is telling them, you're arrogant. You're ignoring my counsel. You think you're untouchable. You think God isn't going to do anything about this man's sin. No, he most definitely will. Grace doesn't mean that God no longer cares about sin among His people. If anything, it means the exact opposite. It means that He will most definitely correct their sin as an expression of His grace. And so you ought to be mourning over what's happened in the church rather than boasting over it. Reason being, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The idea is that God expects His people to be totally pure, to be completely holy. Just like the bread of the Passover was to be completely without leaven, so also does God expect His church to be completely without sin. And so they must learn to tolerate exactly zero sin in the body of Christ. None of it is okay. It's all bad. And so if they permit any of it, He tells them, you're going to suffer for it. God will correct the entire church. I further explain that this is partly due to the fact that in God's eyes, the church is not merely a collection of compartmentalized, self-autonomous cells. You know, it's not a herd of amoebas or something like that, just a clump of individual single-celled organisms. No, it's a body. Meaning, although it's made up of distinctive parts, it's still a collective whole. It's one organism, one entity. And this means that when there's sin in the body of Christ, the entire church faces consequences for it. So again, how much sin is okay in the body of Christ? How much sin can we tolerate in the body of Christ before we finally say enough is enough and do something about it? On the one hand, the answer is none. No amount of sin is ever okay in the body of Christ. But this then raises the question... What about this idea of indwelling sin? What about this notion of progressive sanctification? I mean, none of us are perfect, right? So how does this work? And this leads us to the second answer that we've discovered to this question so far. How much sin is okay in the body of Christ? Well, the answer actually is any amount. So long as everyone involved has the appropriate attitude towards it. I know that probably sounds contradictory. I just said that absolutely no sin is ever okay in the body of Christ. Now I'm saying that any amount is. And how can I say that? Well, it all depends on the church's attitude towards the sin. Again, Paul's problem with the Corinthians is not so much the mere presence of sin within this body, but their attitude towards it. They're totally fine with it. In a sense, they're not just tolerating it, because, you know, toleration implies this idea that you're not happy with something, but you're willing to endure it. It's a kind of patience. And that's not even the attitude that the Corinthians are experiencing here. Rather, theirs is one of acceptance. This man is engaging in this sin, and there doesn't seem to be any measure of contrition over sin on his part. He, too, seems to have accepted this sin as perfectly normal, as perfectly okay. And rather than try to correct this man over his sin, the Corinthians... I've simply accepted it. That's different than tolerance. And Paul is telling them this is wrong. 
You ought to be bothered by this. You ought to be mourning over this. You ought to be doing something about this. That's the real issue here. Again, there is grace in Christ sufficient to cover all our sins. And Christians freely recognize that they're not perfect, that we will never be perfect this side of heaven. But that's not the same thing as merely accepting the fact that we're sinners and doing nothing about it. No, we're supposed to be progressing in the faith. We're supposed to be growing into our calling, growing into Christ's likeness. And so we should, shouldn't expect that if there's known unrepentant sin in the body of Christ, that God is just going to stand idly by and do nothing about it. No, He's going to address it. In short, He will discipline His church to correct their error and really move them along in their advancement in the faith. The conclusion of all of this has been that there's only one way for a body of believers to respond once it becomes apparent that one of their members has adopted this lackadaisical attitude towards sin and has therefore become engaged in known unrepentant sin. And that's to separate. They cannot tolerate the sin in their midst. That much is abundantly clear since to tolerate sin at this point, we've seen, is to become a kind of participant in it. And at that point, it's not just the individual that will be in God's crosshairs, but the entire church. Even still, though, neither can they engage in any kind of act of correction for this sin. We've talked about this in last week's message. We even covered it uh, here in in Sunday school Uh, today. The church is not empowered with the authority to punish sin. That power belongs to God, and on earth, He delegates that power to specific types of authority, the state, of course, being one of them. The church doesn't have that power. I think this is actually important to note. I asked this question last week. Why doesn't God institute some form of corporal punishment for these types of sins like what He did in the Old Testament? And just so you know, the answer is actually He does. I mean, think about Ananias and Sapphira. Think about the individuals who are sick at the end of James. Think even about the individuals who, in chapter 11 of this very same book, we learn are taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, and Paul says some have become sick and are even dying as a consequence. Guys, these types of consequences are still in effect. It's just not the church that enforces them. Either God delivers that penalty directly, or he works indirectly through the power he's delegated to the state. But he does not inflict these types of consequences through the authority invested in the church. The church, rather, is invested with the authority to separate themselves from the sins of these individuals by casting them outside of the covenant community. And this is exactly what Paul instructs this church to do in response to this man's sin. He tells them, verses 4 and 5, he says, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says again, verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He even concludes the passage with this point, actually repeating a a refrain that occurs in some form or fashion some 11 times in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, purge the evil person from among you. So this should be the church's response to sin in the body. It can be incredibly tolerant towards members who are actively struggling against their sin. But when it becomes apparent that a member openly accepts their sin and the church becomes aware of this, there's only one response left, and that's to step back. At that point, the ground is about to open up and swallow that man, and anyone who is standing at his tents along with him is going to get swallowed up as well. And since the church cannot punish the man, the best thing it can do at this point is to simply step back and get out of the way. And you think, if you think I'm kidding on this point, or if you think I'm over-exaggerating the Apostle's response to these types of sin in the body, then consider the Apostle John's response to a heretic by the name of Serinthus. Now, this story isn't scriptural. I'll, I'll warn you about that, so it isn't entirely clear just how true this story is. 
but it's been passed down to us by Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was himself a disciple of John. So there's a little bit of a game of telephone going on here, but they're relatively reliable witnesses nonetheless. Anyways, Irenaeus tells us that it was related to him by some of Polycarp's companions that Polycarp told them that on one occasion John was entering a bathhouse in Ephesus when he noticed that a Gnostic teacher by the name of Serinthus was already inside. So this was someone who claimed to be a Christian, but they were passing on Gnostic teaching. And what did John do? Irenaeus says he literally ran out of the bathhouse while yelling to his companions, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. I mean, if that story is true, then it would appear that John took these kinds of warnings from the Scripture quite seriously. But this raises another question, doesn't it? I mean, if God is going to respond like that to someone who at least acknowledges the supremacy and authority of Christ, then what is He going to do, do with those who don't acknowledge Him? In short, how is He going to deal with the unbeliever? I mean, the Scripture gives us some glimpses, right? In the tribulation, you have kings fleeing from the returning Christ, crying out to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come, and who can stand it? Beyond this, you even have these pictures of hell, where God will pour out His wrath on the wicked for eternity. So, I mean, what do we do with the unbeliever? If God is going to discipline a man like this one in 1 Corinthians 5, and if it's going to be bad enough that the church needs to separate themselves from this man in order to uh, avoid the correction that God is going to place on him, then what does that how does that impact the way that we should interact with unbelievers? Should we separate from them as well? Is God going to correct us for associating with them? Just so you know, this isn't a small question in this letter. This is a question that Paul is going to continue to address throughout this book. You know, is it okay to marry unbelievers? Or supposing we already are married, should we divorce them? What about if an unbeliever asks us over for dinner? Should we go? What if they ask us to attend one of their worship services? What then? These are all questions that Paul is going to address over the next several chapters of this book. But he starts off with the explanation that he gives us right here, beginning in verse 9. Please read along with me, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 9 through 13. This is what Paul says. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. At the beginning of our series, I said that in this passage, Paul gives us three responses to sin in the body of Christ. The first, I noted, was more of an attitude, and the other two are more actions. The attitude was mourning, not arrogance. The church should not be indifferent to sin in the body. Rather, they should mourn over its presence and do something about it. In the first action, we, we saw that the, what this something is that they should do, and that's removal, not association. They draw away from the unrepentant member by evicting them from the body. Now, in the second action, the third response overall, we see less how, they're to re, how they are to respond to sin in the body and more how they're supposed to respond to sin in the world. And that's distinction, not isolation. The church should distinguish itself from the world without taking itself out of the world. 
You see this point in verses 9 and 10, where Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. What I find interesting about this part of the text is that it apparently reveals some of the complaints that the Corinthians had against Paul. I mentioned earlier in this book that various uh, sects or factions seem to have formed in the Corinthian church, not divisions per se, uh, but competing schools of thought. These factions seem to have appeared around the strengths and, and weaknesses of various church leaders. And the Pauline faction seems to have been a relatively small minority within this group. Up to this point, we've seen at least part of what contributed to Paul's unpopularity. Paul had adopted a relatively plain style of teaching while in Corinth, and this plainness of speech was very contrary to cultural expectations. To put it plainly, Paul seemed a little dumb by Corinthian standards. He clearly couldn't keep up with someone with the philosophical sophistication and brilliance of a man like Apollos. Well, here we start to see even more of the picture. Paul has previously written to the Corinthians, we learn, uh, telling them not to associate with sexually immoral people. And, and by what Paul says here, you can almost hear the Corinthians snort back. See, this is what we're talking about. Paul says we need to share the gospel out of the one side of his mouth, and then he tells us not to associate with sexually immoral people out of the other. Clearly, Paul doesn't understand how impossible his expectations are, how unrealistic his instructions are. It's not unlike the treatment that many people give the apostles today. They say, look, what they said was all good and well in their time and their culture, but they clearly didn't anticipate you know, the, the, the nuances and challenges that we would occur and that we would encounter in modern culture. So we understand where they're coming from, uh, but we don't really need to listen to what they have to say today because it doesn't really apply anymore. It's just not sophisticated enough for a modern environment. That seems to be what the Corinthians are thinking as well. Remember, Paul hasn't gotten into the more nuanced explanation of the faith, and the reason was because of the Corinthians' immaturity. Uh, the Corinthians are interpreting that as evidence of Paul's lack of sophistication, when it's actually the other way around. So the Corinthians are rejecting what Paul's told them. They're thinking to themselves, you know, Paul doesn't get it. We can't not interact with sexually immoral people. Not only is that not consistent with the gospel, but it's simply impossible to do. We'd have to eject from human society altogether in order to do that. To which Paul answers back, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but essentially he says, are you dense? <laughs> of course I wasn't talking about unbelievers. Yeah, you'd have to leave the world in order to do that. Basically, he agrees with them. He tells them, no, 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 I wasn't saying that. You misunderstood me. Of course you're going to associate with some sexually immoral people, you could not associate with them without leaving the world altogether. Now, before we go any further on this point, I want to try to clarify something here. There's a common mistake that many Christians make at this point. In fact, as I was writing my sermon this week, I started to make it myself. I was having a really hard time putting the message together and I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't figure out why my thoughts just weren't going. Um, until finally it occurred to me, it was because I was trying to make the passage say something it doesn't say. If I could put it this way, why does Paul command separation from the sinning brother in this passage? Think about it. Why does he tell the church, separate from this man? Is it because he's concerned about the influence this man will have on the body if they don't separate? That's not the reason why, is it? So why is it that he commands this? It's, we've seen it's because if they don't separate from this man, then they'll be disciplined along with him. Do you understand the difference? That's the, that's the negative effect that Paul is concerned about here, not the influence of this man's sin. This is why I tried to spend so much time last week explaining 
Paul's point in verse 6 about a little leaven leavening the whole lump. It's because it's very common to read that and think that Paul is talking about the influence of this man's sin on the body. And that's not Paul's point. He's not talking about how a refusal to deal with this sin might embolden others to join him in his sin. Rather, he's talking about the fact that they are one body, and so if they knowingly allow this sin in their midst, then the entire body is made unholy due to their association with this man. And then at that point, God is going to be forced to discipline the church, not just the man. The reason that distinction matters is because the way you read that verse will affect the way you read the rest of this passage. Meaning if you think that Paul is talking about influence up in verse 6, then you're inclined to think that he's talking about influence down here in verses 9 to 13 as well. And that's how many Christians read this passage. They hear Paul saying, When I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people, I didn't mean the immoral people of this world, since then you'd have to leave the world. And they almost take that as some kind of endorsement from Paul to freely engage with the culture. They think he's saying, I wasn't trying to tell you to isolate yourself from the culture since it would be impossible to do that. You can't really do that. So just go ahead, engage freely with the culture and learn how to fight against it. Learn how to overcome it. In other words, they almost think this is a passage against cultural fundamentalism. They see those who try to resist the culture's influence on their spiritual lives by isolating themselves from it. And they say, listen, you've got it all wrong. Look what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 5. Think about what Jesus says in John 17. We're supposed to be in the world, not of the world. This is what they think Paul is saying in this passage. You can't remove yourself from the culture. You can't isolate yourself from its influence without being unfaithful to your mission. So don't isolate yourself. Instead, overcome it. But not only is that thought inconsistent with what Paul says elsewhere, and even what he'll say later on here in this same letter. But it wouldn't even make sense logically. Paul would be saying, separate yourself from the man because his influence is dangerous. But the world's influence, don't worry about that. That's fine. You can associate with them. That just doesn't make any sense. And this was, this was the mistake I was about to make. It's clear at this point that Paul is concerned with the church's mission. He wants them to engage with the world evangelistically. And the way I was going to approach this was by going back to the Old Testament, sort of like what I did last week. I was going to ask the question, why does God command Israel to be isolated culturally in the Old Testament? But here he tells the church to go out into the world. And I was going to answer it by explaining the differences between Israel under the Mosaic Covenant and the church under the New Covenant and how these differences would better equip us to interact with the world at this level without succumbing to its influence, which is part of Israel's problem in the Old Testament. God commanded Israel to be isolated from the world in large part because they were not spiritually equipped to be engaged with the world without being influenced by it. I was going to point out how the situation has now changed for the church with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And just so you know, this would have all been true. None of what I would have said would have been untrue theologically. It's just not Paul's point. That's not Paul's concern here. And I think if you can grasp this, this, this distinction, then it will really make Paul's instruction in this passage make a whole lot more sense. So let me make this clear. When I say distinction, not isolation, that Paul commands us to be distinguished from the world without taking ourselves out of it, I don't mean that in the sense of cultural isolation. Meaning I'm not saying we shouldn't isolate ourselves from the cultural influences of the world or that we should even actively engage our society at a cultural level. Believe it or not, I think the Bible actually does encourage that kind of isolation at a certain level. I know that may not be a popular or very cool thing to say, but I actually think the Bible does tend to encourage us to actively avoid the world's influences because we are susceptible to them. 
Rather, what I mean by distinction, not isolation, is almost the exact opposite of that. What I mean is that Paul tells us to really function as a kind of subculture within the world, not isolated from it, as a kind of society within a society, meaning we very actively and intentionally distinguish ourselves from the surrounding culture while still living among it. In other words, he's not expecting us to move out into the desert and live like a bunch of monks. But neither is he telling us that we should just go and freely move in and out of the culture either. Instead, he's actually saying, you don't need to isolate yourself from the world because you have already distinguished yourself from the world, and so you won't be judged along with them. Are you guys following me here? He's presuming a kind of distinction between the church and the world that already exists. And he's saying on the basis of this distinction, you don't need to isolate yourself. Reason being, God is not going to hold you accountable for their sin. You can freely interact with the world without any fear of being disciplined for their sin since you're not making any kind of identification with them. I hope you get this point. Because this is going to play really big into our discussion next week. One of the questions that we should be asking ourselves right about now is, how do we make that distinction? What is this distinction? What separates us from the world such that even the world should be able to recognize that we're not in fellowship together, that we don't belong on the same team? And how does that distinction affect the way we interact with the world? To the best of my ability, I want to try to answer that question as we wrap up our discussion of this text next week. And again, I even think this is a question that, that we won't answer just next week, but which it, Paul is going to continue to address over the next several chapters. Paul is very concerned with how we maintain this distinction from the world while interacting with the world. And so we'll continue to address this idea for, from several different angles over the next few months. But for right now, what I want you to understand is that Paul's main point is that the Corinthians don't need to take themselves out of the world since God won't hold them accountable for the world's sins due to the fact that they are already sufficiently distinguished from the world. And if you can get that, then I think the rest of what Paul says here really makes a ton of sense. For the sake of ease, I'd like to break these instructions down into the implication and uh, the application. Again, that's the implication and the application. An implication, of course, is what you might call a necessary consequence. It's the logical conclusion of an idea, whereas to apply means to put into action. So we're looking at both the logical conclusion of this point and the principle that emerges out of it and the proper application of this principle. The implication is this. Judge those inside the church, not outside of it. Judge those inside the church, not outside of it. You see this point in verses 12 to 13, where Paul concludes this passage by saying, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside Purge the evil person from among you. This is really just the logical conclusion of everything else that Paul has said so far. And the logic goes like this. Since the church is distinguished from the world, this means it's not in fellowship with their sin. And since it's not in fellowship with their sin, it's not responsible to hold it accountable for their sin. Therefore, the church does not need to try to hold them accountable by separating themselves from them, since they are already a separate entity. However, the church is in active fellowship with those inside the church, which means it is accountable for their sins, and so it should address their sin and even disassociate themselves from them if they don't repent. You guys get the logic here? Are you following this so far? It's all about relationship. The question is, who are we in fellowship with? 
The idea is that this corporate identity that leads to this corporate correction from God only works for those with those that you're quote unquote joined to. This means that you're only responsible to hold those individuals accountable that you're in active fellowship with. And since we don't enjoy that sort of relationship with the world, God will not hold us accountable for their sin, and so we're free to continue to engage with them without fear. Now again, this raises questions about how this works. I mean, what does that fellowship look like? Why would Paul say in this passage, for instance, don't eat with the man who's committed this sin, because that would indicate fellowship, while later in this same letter, he'll actually encourage believers to go and dine with unbelievers without ever indicating that this would, would indicate fellowship with them. There are various dynamics at play here that we have to keep in mind as we go. But without getting into all of that right now, hopefully you can at least see the general concept. The church is accountable for those inside the church, not outside of it. And so it judges those inside the church, not outside of it. I've entitled this series in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Grace Misapplied. Because in this chapter, we really see Paul adding this level of nuance and sophistication to this notion of grace that I think is very often missing in people's perception of the concept. The church can probably, you know, you think about it, the church can probably seem a bit schizophrenic at times. On the one hand, it will say, uh, God's grace is sufficient for anyone and everyone. It'll proclaim the, the blood of Christ is sufficient to cover all sins. And then it'll, it'll invite people from all walks of life to attend its services, no matter the degree of their sinful past or even their sinful present, really. And then it'll turn around and condemn or even evict members for far lesser offenses. It will in one instance dine with the prostitute and then in the other shun the tax collector. It is at the same time both inclusive and exclusive. And it's easy to wonder, what gives? You know, which, which are you? Do you have standards or don't you? What sort of lifestyle does a person have to live up to in order for Christians to be willing to live in fellowship with them? In some instances, they come across as incredibly judgmental. And in other instances, they're very forgiving. It can be kind of confusing. And to make matters even worse, there are some who will try to simplify all this confusion by falling entirely either on one side of the issue or the other. They'll either hold no standards for everyone, or they'll try to hold everyone to the same standard. And so then you have these different camps within Christianity holding to two completely opposite perspectives. And that only adds to the conclusion or the confusion. Listen, if you want to understand why the church seems so schizophrenic at times, I think you find the answer right here in the concepts that we've been talking about this morning. The reason why the Christian can be incredibly gracious and patient with the sins of the unbeliever and sit down and dine with them and have fellowship with them while at the same time shunning some of their own members for far lesser sins is because we do not believe we are accountable for the sins of the unbeliever in the same way that we are for the believer. It's not that the unbeliever's sins are okay. We're just not bound to respond to them in the same way because we're not made partners with them in their sin in the same way that we're made partners in the sins of our fellow brothers and sisters. And in the same way, the reason why the Christian can be incredibly gracious and patient with the sins of one believer and sit down and dine with them and have fellowship with them, while at the same time shunning another one of their members for far lesser sins, is because we do not have the expectation, even among our members, that they will be perfect in their faith. We merely expect them to be making progress in their faith. 
It's almost like this notion of fairness or equality has so poisoned our thinking that we don't see people as individuals, each with their own set of spiritual circumstances and challenges. Or maybe it's just mental laziness, because the truth is, it's hard to differentiate. It's hard to distinguish between one person's circumstance and another, uh, another's and discern the appropriate response in each scenario. It requires a kind of spiritual calculus where the Christian is constantly running a set of computations in the background as new information forces them to adjust the trajectory of their response. It's much easier to simply paint with a broad brush. Still, this is what's required if we're going to rightly apply this notion of grace in the church. In my family, we've uh, lately started a new kind of saying. Uh, I say we, maybe it's more me. Um, but uh, more and more I find myself saying, uh, we don't do fair. Uh, you can probably imagine the scenario in which it's uttered. A child perceives some kind of unequal treatment in the home. One child receives something that the other doesn't, and they immediately object. That's not fair. Uh, to which I've started answering, that's okay. We don't do fair in this home. Now, just so you know, we do actually do fair in our home, if by fair you mean equitable. But that's not what my children often mean when they object that's not fair. What they mean is that's not equal. And they're often right, what I've done is not equal. But at the same time, neither are my children. Yes, they may all be loved equally, but they're very different people. I'm not going to have the same set of standards for a nine-year-old that I would for a two-year-old. I'm going to treat them differently because they're different people. And in this way, what I've done may not be equal. It may not be fair in the way that they think of fairness, but it is equitable. It is just concerning the, considering the circumstances. And so it is with the church. The church is occasionally going to apply different sets of standards to different people. It will judge the insider and not the outsider. It will be patient with the sins of some members while rebuking the sins of others. And it's very easy when this happens for people to cry out, wait a second, that's not fair. And it may not be fair, at least in the way that they think of fairness. Meaning, yes, it is not equal. But if it's done right, it is still equitable. It is just, it's right for that individual in their set of circumstances. So if this is true, if this, if this kind of thinking uh, does require a measure of discernment and nuance, then I think the question becomes, how do we do this? How is this idea applied? And this takes us to the application of this concept that the church is to judge those inside the church, not outside of it. And just so you know, that's not something that I can comprehensively answer for you with the time uh, we have left here this morning. In fact, this is really, I think, the very issue I want to try to get into, get into with you next week as we tie everything together uh, that we've been learning over the past few weeks. I want us to spend some time trying to put feet to all of this because I think there's really a lot to think about here, uh, enough, I think, to warrant a message of its own. But I'd like to wrap up by briefly pointing out two observations from this text uh, that I think will help guide this discussion as we try to apply this principle of judging those inside the church, not outside. The first observation I would make is that Paul notes that we should separate from those who are engaged in known unrepentant sin only when they bear the name of brother. You do this when they bear the name of brother. You see this in verse 11. Again, starting in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. 
Again, Paul is trying to clear up some of the confusion that's come up over what he wrote to the Corinthians before, and this is part of the clarification. He's telling them, I didn't mean everyone who's guilty of sexual immorality, but more specifically, the one who bears the name brother. Essentially, he's talking about people who claim a relationship with Christ. I tell you, this carries some pretty significant implications. You take this notion of church discipline, for instance, and how is step four removed? How is someone who's under step four with everything that entails, how are they restored to a relationship with the church? In a sense, there are actually two answers to that question. The most obvious answer is repentance. They turn from their sin, they begin making progress in their faith again, and on the basis of that growth, they're welcomed back into fellowship with the church. <laughs> the second and sometimes overlooked answer to this question is apostasy, meaning they can openly renounce their faith. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean they're going to be restored to fellowship in the church in the same way as the one who repents of their sin. It just means that I can begin treating them like an unbeliever again, and that means I can begin interacting with them again. Reason being, through their open renunciation of their faith, it's become clear that we're no longer in fellowship together. I'm not going to be held accountable for, I'm not going to be disciplined for their sins because we're not brothers anymore. That relationship was broken when they renounced Christ. So that's one observation to make. Paul says that we should separate from those who are engaged in known unrepentant sin only when they bear the name of brother. Now, there's still some questions that we could ask here, especially in a community such as ours that is saturated with cultural Christianity. Uh, for instance, uh, what does it mean to bear the name brother? That's a completely legitimate question. I mean, the person who's been baptized when they were five, right? but then they don't attend church anymore? Maybe they haven't in 10, 20 years? Are they my brother in this sense? Should I separate myself from them if they're engaged in known unrepentant sin? What about the person who attends an apostate or pseudo-Christian church? You know, Roman Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Am I treating them like unbelievers or like someone who bears the name brother? Really, for that matter, what if they just attend a different church? If someone is engaged in known unrepentant sin, but they attend a different evangelical church, or maybe not even evangelical church, but Protestant church, should I still regard them as my brother, and should I separate from them? There's a lot to think through here. I don't know if I'll have the time to tackle all these questions next week, but between, hopefully between the sermon and home fellowship group, I'll try to do the best I can. At the very least, what we can see right now is that Paul says that we only separate ourselves from those who bear the name brother. They must at least claim some kind of relationship with Christ. The second observation to make is that when this separation happens, we should, quote, not even eat with such a one. You see this at the end of verse 11. Paul says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And I think what I'd like to point out with this observation is that this action probably entails much, much more than just eating. You go further into this letter, for instance, and I think what we'll discover more and more is that for both Paul and the Corinthians, a meal was more than just a meal. It's really fascinating when you step back and observe just how much the concept of eating comes up in this letter. But I mean, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 11, they're all going to return to this idea of eating, of meals. The Corinthians seem to be very concerned with this issue. And the further we get into this letter, the more I think we'll discover that the reason is because for Paul and the Corinthians, a meal wasn't just a time when you consumed calories. It was a time for conversation and relationship. In short, for them, a meal constituted friendship and fellowship. 
And so for a person to eat with someone else was for them to communicate a kind of partnership with them. And that's what Paul seems to be concerned about here. More than just the mere act of eating, he doesn't want the church to in any way communicate their fellowship with this individual. They need to completely cut themselves off from any kind of activity that might communicate that they belong to one another. And I think it's important to note that in context, that communication is really directed at one another more than it is to the world. Just so you know, Paul does indicate at different points that he will think about what PR people call optics. In short, he does at times consider how the world perceives his ministry, and he even very intentionally shapes his actions so that the world will hear the gospel clearly and without any kind of confusion. However, again, that's not the concern that Paul is dealing with here. Again, the problem that Paul envisions is that if the church doesn't separate itself, then God will discipline them for their refusal to correct this man's sin. So if we're worried about anyone's perception of the situation, then it's God's in this instance, right? Not the world's. And in this context, that probably means that we need to adequately adequately communicate to the person in question that we are not in any way partners until they renounce or repent. Now, just what that entails in this day and age probably includes more than just the mere act of eating. What we need to be thinking about, if we're going to properly apply this verse, is what communicates fellowship or partnership. And then try to separate ourselves in that sense when we encounter a brother engaged in known unrepentant sin. Again, that's probably not an easy or simple question to answer but we need to do our best to address it the best we can if we hope to avoid the consequences that Paul has been warning us about in this passage. And again, this is what I'm going to attempt to do next week to the best of my ability. Uh, Hopefully, uh, I've got your mind going here over the past uh, few weeks. Hopefully, you're beginning to think about this notion of grace with the kind of nuance that the Corinthians thought was lacking in Paul's teaching. And you're beginning to see the proper application of grace in in the body, and you're starting to realize that it requires a lot of caution and a lot of care. We can't paint with a broad brush. We must deal with the details. We have to get into the specifics. And I'm going to try to fill in those details as we wrap up this discussion on the proper application of grace in the body of Christ in the fourth and final message of this series next week. Let's pray.